uh, 21 days of fasting and prayer we've been doing. Uh, you're, you're making it. You look shiny and healthy, so that's good. You're making it through whatever, whatever you're uh, praying about and fasting. It seems to be working, so that's good news. Um, in, in this time, we've had this series we've called Re-Up, because the beginning of the year is a time that we often you know, re-sign up for things. We re-sign up for our insurance or we re-sign up for our streaming service, or re-sign up to the gym, or we set goals. You know, We've got this goal to ha- walk so many steps a week, or whatever it is. What I wanted to do is back up from all the, um, the noise, from all the different places in our lives that are asking us to recommit or to re-up to something and say, what, what would God want you and I to recommit ourselves to? Maybe it's not something new, Maybe it's something we already know, but in the transition of a season, it's time to recommit again. And so far, we've said two things. We've said uh, re, re-up our commitment to God's Word and to the awe of God. We talked about that the last two weeks. If you've missed one of those, you can catch it on our website or our YouTube channel, Facebook. But today, I want to give you one more. Now, we've been drawing these from an event in the Old Testament where um, the Israelites had resettled the land, they had, they had you know, escaped from slavery and bondage, and they had re-inhabited their own land, and they had established uh, a community again, and they had rebuilt the temple, which was the centerpiece of the entire community, and they were coming together for this event in 1 Kings 8, as we've looked at it, to dedicate this temple to God. It was a magnificent building, it was a magnificent structure, and um, it, was, it was one of the, the greatest structures of its time. And this was actually the apex of Israel's history. And, and actually, um, they celebrated so long, it was a 14-day celebration. Can you imagine a, a two-week celebration to dedicate and celebrate this uh, event? And, and, and this is one of the greatest events in Israel's history. Some people say it's either the greatest or the exodus when the people were broken out of slavery. Uh, you know, from, from a bondage, from the Babylonians, that was a great event, and this is either the greatest or it's equal to it. So this was, a, this was the literal peak of Israel's history. Now, in the dedication, King Solomon comes to pray a prayer, and it's a long prayer, over the temple. And do you know what the majority of his prayer's about? It's about forgiveness for sins. It's about forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to just to contextualize this in your mind for a minute. Imagine the greatest event, the greatest event in your entire nation's history. May, you know, we'll be, we'll be swearing in a, a new president next year. Can you imagine uh, at, the, at the swearing in of the president, we come and pray, hey, God, uh, we, we want to ask you about our sins. Now, that, actually, that would be uh, an improvement. <laughs> However, the... Solomon wasn't praying about the past sins. He was praying about the future ones. Now, I just want you to try to put this in some kind of modern event and see what it would look like. Imagine that um, you were going to attend a wedding, and you go to the wedding, and, and you know, you have, you have uh, uh, Chris and, you know, I don't know, Tammy, okay? Chris and Tammy, I don't know, whoever. You have this couple that's going to come get married. And imagine Chris and Tammy come to the altar to get married, and the pastor steps forward and says, this is such a beautiful day of celebration, and we're here to celebrate this couple. And what I want to spend most of the time talking about today during this wedding ceremony are their future sins. That doesn't feel right, does it? 
See, what's going to happen is, is Chris is going to get a little too emotionally attached to a woman at work, and he's going to have an emotional affair in about 10 years, and it's going to create havoc on their family. And Tammy's going to turn to drinking, and she's going to become a, 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 an alcoholic, and that's going to wreck her mental health, and she's not going to be a very good mom. And that's going to happen in about 11 years. Can you imagine if you went to a wedding where we were talking about future sins? It doesn't, imagine high school graduation, right? Adam, Adam Smith, come, you, you go across the thing, and here's the chancellor that's going to hand you the, you know, the uh, scroll, the document that you've worked on, and you say, yay, isn't that great for Adam? Well, what you don't know is, is Adam's going to have a, a, a gambling addiction in a few years, and greed and envy are going to wreck his life, and he's going to go bankrupt, and he's going to steal from his family, and he's going to become a terrible person. Isn't that great? Yeah, congratulations, Adam. See, this doesn't make sense in our mind. This is the greatest event in Israel's history, and in the middle of it, Solomon's praying about future sins they haven't even committed yet. And you may be sitting there saying, it's the beginning of the year, I hadn't even had time to sin much. Like, why are we talking about it in 2024? Well, because... Solomon's not praying about how enamored he is because of the building that they've been able to build or, or look at the energy, look at the, well, finally we're a nation again and look how strong we are. And look at the, uh, you may enter the new year with great energy and say, this year has so much potential. You know, this year I'm gonna improve, I'm gonna grow, I'm gonna add and all this stuff. But what King Solomon does in his prayers, he says, when we sin, You'll catch this phrase in the prayer, when we sin, by the way, we're not done with sin yet. Just because we have a new temple, just because it's 2024, just because you graduate, just because you get married, just because you have a phenomenal peak in your life doesn't mean you're done with sin yet. And that's what Solomon was praying. He was pleading for the people of God to stay in right relationship with God. So what I want to do is I want to show you just some spots in this prayer where we catch this theme, 1 Kings 8.30. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. All right, verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and give praise to your name, praying and make, making supplication in this temple. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them. Verse 38, and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, be aware of the afflictions of their own hearts. And look at verse 46. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Who does that include? Everybody, everybody right? Everybody, right? That includes everybody. Now here's the bad news. Israel didn't get the message. For the next 14 generations, they went into spiritual decline. So what does this mean for us today as New Testament people who live in 2024. Here's what it means. Every day is not going to be a good day. Wouldn't it be better to start the year with a more promising word? Yay, it's 2024. The best is yet to come. Live your best life now. That's not what Solomon said. Solomon said, this is fantastic. However, 
Every day this, in 2024 is not going to be a good day. You know why? Because you and I aren't done with sin yet. You have not committed your last sin, and neither have I. We're not done with the whole process yet, and you and I both have broken parts inside our soul that are not yet healed. So, what, what should we recommit to? Here it is. I'm going to give you two things. Number one, take sin seriously. Now look, I, I, please believe me when I tell you I know how that can sound, right? I know how it can sound. I grew up in a very legalistic uh, background. I, I, I was either heathen or legalist. That's the two options I had. My dad wasn't saved, my mom was. We grew up in this little church and it was legalistic and I can remember sitting in the pew. I still remember this. We had a guest speaker one Sunday and he spoke on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit you know, to about 38 people. And I was sitting there with my, with my uh, hands locked into the pew in front of me. My knuckles were white. I was zeroed in. My heart rate was up. I was sweating. I thought, the, oh God, please don't let me commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know, I was about 12. And I remember his, his story he told to illustrate it. He said, there was this man in a church once that I went to. And this man would sit in the back and he would cry every service. And so one day the pastor went to him and said, why are you crying? And he said, because I want to be part of the church so bad. I want to be a Christian so bad. I want to go to heaven so bad. But I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I can never get in. And I remember sitting there, it was like a lightning bolt in my little soul. I went, oh Jesus, I don't ever want to do that. And it scared the liver out of me. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit at 12 years old. I'm not saying it's not a real thing, but man, what we used to do in churches, we just used to dangle people over hell for a little while until their clothes started to smoke, and then we'd jerk them out so they could get right with God. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else have that experience? I understand how this can sound. The little church I grew up in was so legalistic, you couldn't even put a, a cough drop in your mouth during church because that was considered eating, and you weren't supposed to eat in church. So we figured out this handy little move. We'd tuck a mint sideways in a little circle, we'd cough, <coughs> and we'd put it in. Now you're good. You're ready to go. So you'd hear, <coughs> you know, we're about to, church is about to get out, and everybody's breath's bad, so <coughs> One time I did it, though, and I went the wrong way, and it sucked down my throat, and I was like, <coughs> you know. And the legalists would say, that's what you get for sinning in church. And we'd, we would drive home and people would talk about how, you know, we're not supposed to eat out in restaurants on Sunday because you're causing everybody to sin to violate the Sabbath and work on Sunday. And in my little 12-year-old brain, I didn't understand. I thought, isn't, that, I mean, aren't sinners' jobs sin? Isn't that what they do? I don't feel like I'm causing that. And then, you know, it was funny as the years went by, fried chicken just won out and we had to have it, so... That, that rule kind of got swept under. Look, if you, if you grew up in an environment like that, or that was part of your shaping as a, as a believer, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I, everything that we've experienced in church is not conviction. Sometimes what we've experienced in church is shame or, or fear or condemnation or legalism masked in conviction. And so I'm not talking about any of that stuff. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Now, on the other hand, the pendulum has now swung into a culture where sort of everything is permissive. 
And sin can sound like something your grandmother tells you to scare you into doing right. You know, something like, don't cross your eyes too long, they'll stick. Right? Or, you know, don't, don't wait 30 minutes after you eat before you go into the swimming pool or your muscles are going to cramp, you're going to sink to the bottom and drown. And I, and I understand that it can, this concept can sound, you know, like, haven't we moved past that? And what Solomon was reminding the people in his day was, no matter how beautiful the temple is today, no matter how beautiful today is, no matter how good things are yet, we haven't moved past it. As a matter of fact, one of the central functions of the tabernacle was to be a place where people could come and confess their sins and find forgiveness. So why I take sin seriously? Some people say you should take sin seriously because sin separates you from God. And you hear, you know, you may have never heard this, but some of you have, and, and I had. When, you know, when I was younger growing up, somebody would say, well, what happens if you told a little white lie and you walked out that door and walked in, nobody ever explained why you'd be walking in the highway, but you walk out in the highway and get hit by a car and you die and go to heaven. Where would you go? Where would you spend eternity? You didn't have time to repent of that sin. Where would you go? Well, I can tell you where you'd go if you're a son or daughter of God. You'd go to heaven. Here's why. We don't live in a works-based relationship. We live in a grace-based relationship. And if you think that you've got to repent for every sin that you do as a believer to go to heaven, then you're saying that Jesus' death and resurrection is not enough. I've got to add my own works to it, and I've got to might as well pop up an Excel spreadsheet and try to track everything I do or don't do and make sure that I legalistically... You're creating a different religion. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not even a religion. It's a relationship. So if you're a believer, you're going to go to heaven. Unless you believe in works-based. Now, if you're not a believer, sin absolutely separates you from God. But as a son or daughter of God, it does not. In the book of Galatians, Paul the Apostle addresses a lot of this. Jesus' work is enough. Now, Romans 5.20 says, The law was brought in so that Trespass might increase, in other words, sin might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So here, here's the thing. There's always going to be more grace than there is sin. You're never going to be able to fill up your sin bucket so full that God's grace isn't able to restore you, to clean you, to wash you, to forgive you, and to heal you. So here's the question. If sin will not sin a son or daughter of God to hell, then, then why does it matter? Like, it, like if we're not going to suspend people over eternity and say, careful, careful now, because your eternity's at stake. Don't tell that white lie. Don't do whatever the thing is that you do. Don't do that. If we're not going to do that, then why does sin matter? I want to give you three reasons this morning that you should take sin seriously as a New Testament believer. Here's the first one. Sin produces death. Sin and death always go together. When, when you look at the opening chapter of human history, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and everything was fine and everything lived and everything flourished and everything multiplied and everything grew until sin entered the Garden. And when sin entered the Garden, death entered into humanity. Sin and death always go together, death of all kinds. 
So whatever part of your life that you give to sin or allow sin to live in, death is going to be produced in that part of your life. Galatians 6, 8 says it this way. Whoever sows to please their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. So if you, if you allow gossip to live in your life, sin's going to produce death in your relationships. If you allow gluttony to live in your life, sin is going to produce death in your body. If you allow lust to live in your life, death is going to be produced in your heart. If you allow greed and envy to live in your life and your spirit, your soul, it's going to produce death in your peace and your contentment. Because sin and death always travel together. So, so the reason to take sin seriously is because you don't want something producing death in your life. Here's the other reason. Here's another reason. Sin steals your joy. The Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Right? Do you know it's sin's job to suck off all the energy that you have to serve God? That's what it does. When you walk in sin, when you walk in perpetual and habitual sin, what it does is it drains the energy that God's given you to live a vibrant and a fully alive life for him and to walk in joy. It takes it from you. It numbs your passion. It drains your spiritual strength. That's why King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he said, God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Because sin will absolutely rob you of joy. Here's another reason. Sin lies to you. Now that might not seem like a big deal at first. But if you wait long enough, what will happen is you'll start to believe things that aren't true. And it's, it's a mistake to confuse sin's pace with its lethalness. Just because it moves slow doesn't mean it's not working. So, so many times we participate in something and we wait for something to go wrong and we go, see, nothing went wrong. I guess it's not that big a deal. Nothing happened wrong. Something happened because it's silent and because it's slow doesn't mean nothing happened. Your soul started to be eroded. It's like sin grows like mold on your lungs. And over time, it spreads and it starts to choke you to death. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13 says this. Listen, see to it, brothers and sisters. Okay, time out for a second. Who are we talking to? Who's this verse talking to? Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, Christians, people of faith, right? That's who the verse is to. Okay, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. You mean a Christian can have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God? Well, yes, according to Hebrews 3, 12. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin produces death it steals joy, it lies to you, it deceives you, it's hard, it hardens your heart. Will it separate the child of God from God? No, 
but it will lie to you and lie to you and spread like a mold and a fungus in your heart till you start to believe the wrong things and you get confused and you get deceived and then you begin to even wonder, is God good? Is God real? Is God true? And what will happen is you may come to the day you don't even believe God is real anymore and you know what you do? You turn your back and you walk away. Can you walk away from your salvation? Yes. But it's not going to be because you committed one sin and didn't repent. It's going to be because you allowed it to grow in your soul like a mold over time, and it's lying to you and lying to you and tricking you and deceiving you, and you start believing things that aren't true, and they undermine your faith, and then all of a sudden your foundation's gone, and you say, well... I guess it doesn't even matter. Sin will rot your heart and it will grow like a mold spore on your soul. So how do you take sin seriously? If we're not gonna live in the fear that any minute one unrepentant sin is gonna send us to hell, then how do you take sin seriously? Here's how you do it. There's only one way I know to do it. Confession. For centuries in the church all over the world, New Testament believers have practiced confession. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we bring our sins to God and we confess, it's not because he doesn't already know He already knows. But when you confess your sins to God, you admit them. And when you admit them, it allows something beautiful to begin to happen inside your life. It allows change to start to happen. See, the Old Testament temple functioned as the place where sins confessed. The New Testament temple is is you and I. As individual believers, this is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is a place that functions as a place of confession in my heart. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as the New Testament church, and the church ought to function as a place where confession of sins happens. Now, um, the last couple of years uh, of, of my life have been, have been brutal. A year ago, this month, with no warning and no explanation, I woke up with pain all over my body, a a deep paralysis, nerve damage, large chunks of my body that didn't work right anymore. Went through a process that led to surgery, had the surgery, I'm still recovering. Four months after the surgery, my wife got COVID and died. And so it's been a... a, (laughs) A difficult season for me. And, and that's really been a difficult season for me that came just after other difficult seasons, that there was really no break. And so in the middle of that season, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, COVID, all the things, I really struggled. I really struggled. And in my own prayer time and my own relationship with God, I couldn't quite understand. I was wrestling with something and I didn't know what it was. And as I kind of got to the bottom of it, I realized here's where my struggle is. I'm struggling to trust God. I'm struggling to trust him because here's kind of how I feel about it. 
God, it's your job, as I understand it, to take care of me and my family. And I don't think you're doing a very good job. <laughs> like things are happening that I don't think ought to be happening. And I don't think you're doing a very good job. And it caused me to distrust him and to say, well, then maybe I ought to just look out for myself. Now, that's an odd thing to hear a pastor say, I'm struggling to trust God. The pastor's not supposed to say that. Here's the problem. I'm not only a pastor, I'm also a human. You see what I mean? I don't, I know, you only see me on Sundays, so you think I don't exist the rest of the week. I actually do. <laughs> actually, you know, I have, a, I have a life outside of that and go to the grocery store and all that stuff. So I struggled because of my suffering. And I said, well, Lord, I, I think what I'm struggling with is I don't trust you. I want to trust you. I know I should trust you, but I don't trust you. Because you haven't really, um, I haven't been able to figure out in all these years of suffering where you've been sometimes and what you've been doing. So if I couldn't, if that's how that goes, then maybe in the future I'll just try to work out some stuff on my own and, you know, maybe I'll pull it off better than you did. I don't know. But I didn't like this. Am I speaking English? <laughs> so I, um, I just begin to wrestle with that, and I begin to bring it to God and say, okay, God, I don't know how to fix it, but I'm sorry. Distrusting you is not something a child of God should do. All through the scripture, we sang a song this morning, I trust in God, you know, and I'd come to church and sing that, and then I'd go, I don't think I'm doing that very good. So I begin to pray about that and confess that sin to God. God, I'm... I don't know how to fix it, but I don't trust you, and I don't know how to trust you better, but all I can do is tell you I don't trust you, and I don't trust you, and I'm mad about some of this, and I, I need help with that. Lord, I, I ask you to forgive me and, and release this. And so what happened is um, God began to work forgiveness in my life, and he began to bring freedom through that process. And, and now that brings me to James 5.16 that says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So what we see in this function of the New Testament temple of God is that we are to confess our sins to God and confess our sins to each other. And what follows that is healing and freedom and peace. Right? And, and so... Um, I've got a friend that I talk to about things like this. And so I begin to talk it over with my friend. I say, I think, I think the, I'm having a problem. And I think the problem I'm having is, is I'm struggling to trust God. Because it, it seems a lot easier to, for me to trust myself because I know what I want to happen and, and I can at least try to make that happen, but I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> so, so what do I do? And here's the thing. There are long conversations, and there's a lot of layers to it. But here's what began to happen to me. Through those conversations, and through those confessions, and through prayer, a lot of healing and a lot of uh, freedom came into my life. So why do you take sin seriously? How do you know you're taking sin seriously? When you are confessing your sin to God, and you're confessing it to another believer... You are taking it seriously. 
And when you do that, what begins to happen is you begin to experience healing and grace and freedom and joy and strength. So let me ask you a question today. I'm not going to ask you, do you still sin? Well, that would be, that'd be a crazy question, wouldn't it? Solomon said, there's nobody that doesn't sin. So my question is, since I know that includes all of us, all of us online and in person, where do you confess your sins? I mean, if you can't, if you can't prevent yourself from ever sinning again between now and when you die, then where do you confess your sins at? Now, I know that's a loaded question, and I understand because our culture shifted, and we used to be a culture of guilt. Now we're a culture of shame. And I understand that there's, that's kind of a loaded question because you say, man, we live in a culture now where it's not safe to confess anything because if you do, you're going to get canceled. You're going to lose your job. Social media is going to come after you. People are going to you know, ramp up a campaign and try to destroy you because that's the kind of culture we live in. We live in this arrogant, higher moral culture that wants to squash everybody that doesn't agree. And so it's made it an unsafe, listen to me, it's made it an unsafe place to be a New Testament Christian. And sometimes the church doesn't do a good job with it either. Because sometimes somebody confesses their sin to somebody at church and then they gossip. Sometimes they tell other people and they shouldn't and sometimes they treat them wrong and sometimes they isolate them and sometimes they shut them out. And let's just be honest, that's not, that's not, a, that's not the temple but here's what happens when we don't provide. I think the church is the only place left that can do it. And if we don't provide a place for people to, to confess their sins, they don't receive healing and restoration and freedom and joy and peace. Right? So we have to be that place. So, confess your sins to God. Confess them to another believer. Here's my encouragement. You don't have to do what I did. You don't have to, and, and go ahead and just thank God for that. You don't have to do that. You don't have to get the microphone and stand in front of everybody and tell them. You don't have to tell everybody, but you need to tell somebody. Here's my advice to you. Find somebody you trust. And just because they're got a title or they're a leader or they're whatever, they may, may or may not be trustworthy. Find someone you trust and say, listen, I've got this thing in my life. I'm struggling. Would you pray for me? And the function of the New Testament church is to say, Jesus forgives you, and Jesus restores you, and Jesus gives grace to you, and where your sin has abounded, grace is going to abound more, which, by the way, grace is more than forgiveness. Grace is the power to stop sinning. So, Confess your sins that you might be forgiven and healed. Are there some things that you've let slide? Just kind of let them grow like a little mold. And the next time you turn the light on, they're double the size. So here's my last thought for today. Take sin seriously, number two. Take forgiveness seriously. Here's the good news, okay? Forgiveness is the greatest gift on earth that we have. 
See, there's a fatal disease that we have that kills us and causes mass suffering, and there's only one cure for it, and it's called forgiveness. So forgiveness is at the heart of the Old Testament temple, it's at the heart of the New Testament temple, it's at the heart of the gospel, and it's at the heart of the cross that Jesus died on. Forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So forgiveness is supposed to flow this way, and it's supposed to flow this way. And one without the other is incomplete. Forgiveness is God's gift to relationships. And it's, the heart, it's at the heart of relationships. Forgiveness heals marriages. It heals families. It heals relationships of all kind. It heals friendships. Forgiveness heals your relationship with God. Forgiveness heals all relationships. So I strongly encourage you today not to live without it. And to give it to the people in your life who need it. Because there's some people that might need you to forgive them. Because you know our sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. When we sin, we oftentimes hurt other people whether we intend to or not. And so sometimes we need to forgive those who have sinned against us. And sometimes we need to ask for forgiveness of sin when we have sinned against them. Forgiveness is this way and it's this way. I think the church can be a place of hope and freedom if we'll live up to what God has called us to be as a community. And that's a safe place. Where are people supposed to go when they sin? Where do they go? Where do you go? Where do you turn? How do you, how do you deal with it? How do you get restored and if the church will if we'll be that loving community where we accept people with grace extend the forgiveness of Christ from the cross to them when they need it and ask for it when we need it it'll change a lot of our lives would you stand with me this morning Lord, I I just ask you today, um, let today begin a process of healing. It, it, It might be more than one step. It might be a process. It might be a journey like it was for me. Let today be the final step for some people, the only step for some people. And the many steps for those of us who need it. But God, let today be a day of grace where we experience the forgiveness of Jesus. How good it is to experience the forgiveness of Jesus and have the mold wiped away and the weight lifted and the burden gone and the joy come back. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. King David Lord, we worship you today. Let's just worship him with this song. And then-